Chapter 4, Part 4 of The Greater Life and Work of Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Greater Life and Work of Christ by Alexander Patterson. Chapter 4, Section 4. We may look in reverent imagination upon the scene within the sepulchre. It is a low-roofed place in which it is scarcely possible to stand erect. There lies the form we saw hanging on the cross. Loving hands have wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and fragrant spices. Limbs and head are carefully adjusted. No human body could be more truly dead than that one. Jesus died a broken-down man and, as we have seen, was probably a sufferer from a fatal disease. By his crucifixion, every vital organ must have been wrenched out of all hope of restoration. His heart was pierced by the soldier's spear, which probably emptied the entire blood from the body. He had lain since the third day in this state. The tomb is closed by a stone which required the strength of several men to move. It was sealed, and a guard of soldiers watched before it. No one of his own power had ever come out from the dead, and there was no prophet to work such a miracle. To human eyes all was hopeless. Except his own word and the predictions of Scripture, there was not a single ray of hope that Jesus would rise. The preliminary and preparatory events of the resurrection of Jesus are thus described. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was as lightning, and his raiment white as snow, and for fear of him the watchers did quake and became as dead men. But all this is not the event itself. We may with reverent minds try to picture it. The Holy Spirit had never left that precious form. He is the giver of life. Now he simply exercises his office work. Therefore life flows through that lifeless body. Lungs and brain and nerves and muscles all respond as naturally as in one in full health. The cause only of that life and movement is different. Blood is the means of the life of the human body, but not so in this, for it is absent from Jesus' veins. A change, too, takes place in the body itself. It is the resurrection change. It becomes superior to natural laws, yet it was a real body. Jesus was afterward handled and felt, did eat and drink, was heard and spoken to and recognized. It was true corporeal life, but sustained by the immediate power of the Holy Spirit. All the functions of the body were in full state of perfection. It was the same, yet not the same. The change is thus described, it is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. It is clothed also in garments of immortality. The garb Jesus wore was neither his former raiment nor the grave clothes. There should be no difficulty in accounting for his being supplied with clothing. The angels who ministered in Gethsemane could do so now in this also. Christ entered again the tabernacle he occupied so long and is now to inhabit forever. 
He opened his eyes as calmly as if from a refreshing sleep, sat up and unwrapped the burial clothes, folded them neatly and laid them aside, the napkin which was about his face in a place by itself. He rose and stepped out of the open door. There was no human being to greet the risen Savior. Had they had faith, all the apostles certainly would have been there to meet him. Jesus waited about the sepulchre and saw the women come and go away again in haste and excitement at finding the sepulchre open and empty. He also saw Peter and John come in and look in and go away again. He kept himself unseen and was silent. He was evidently looking or waiting for something. He was looking for what he constantly longed for in life and always, faith in himself and in his word. Nothing so delighted him on earth as to find faith in anyone, and nothing so grieved him as unbelief. Now he longs to find among them some who have faith to believe in his resurrection, and to show their faith by coming to the sepulchre to meet him. But he finds none. The women come to finish the embalming, and not to see a risen Jesus. Peter and John come to the sepulchre, but only to see the thing reported by the women. All come and go but one, and she remains, not to see a living Savior, but to find, if possible, where they have taken the body. It seems strange that, with the empty sepulchre before them, and the linen clothes, and the napkin folded in proper shape and place, all showing Jesus' careful ways, and not the work of robbers or of foes, and the repeated predictions of Jesus himself in mind, and the appearance of the angels and their message, he is not here, for he is risen, even as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. It is strange that with all this they did not believe he was risen. Jesus found affection for himself personally, but not faith in his word. They were yet lacking in the work of the Spirit, without which faith and every other grace and gift are impossible. Their need was set before them as ours is set before us for our self-examination by this scene about the empty sepulchre. Having shown them their total absence of faith, he now proceeds to the revelation of himself. The first human being to see the risen Christ and to become the bearer of the good news to the church was Mary Magdalene. Why was she selected for so great an honor, as great almost as that of the other Mary, who gave him birth? to whom, in her history, she was such a contrast. She had been a great sinner, and had had much forgiven and loved Jesus correspondingly. Mary Magdalene had little faith but great love, and this covers a multitude of shortcomings. For the same reason Peter was honored above the other apostles, Jesus will overlook anything where there is true love for himself. An act of Mary shows her great love and little understanding. She lays hold on him, probably falling at his feet and clasping them, as the other women did, as if she feared he would immediately ascend and leave her. To her, Jesus says, Take not hold upon me, for I am not yet ascended to the Father. As much as you say, you need not hold me. I am not leaving you immediately. He gives her a message to the disciples, whom he now for the first time calls my brethren, Having been now made perfect by suffering, he is not ashamed to call them so. He follows his message by a personal appearance to two of the disciples, and by these successive means prepares the apostles gradually for the startling event of his appearance. 
there is no record of the doings or the state of the apostles during the time jesus lay in the sepulchre jesus had said ye shall be scattered every man to his own and shall leave me alone the record tells us that at his arrest the disciples left him and fled peter followed into the palace afterward only to deny him thrice john also was in the assembly but silent they no doubt engaged with all others in the duties and services of the Passover feast. Their state may be seen reflected in the account of the two Jesus met on the way to Emmaus. They said, We hoped that it was he which should redeem Israel. The whole company of disciples no doubt shared these feelings. All were sad, disappointed, and hopeless. No doubt there was, too, the usual feelings we all have at the loss of dear ones, and especially the very common feelings of self-reproach at real or fancied neglect or wrongs done to the dear departed. They all had occasion for such thoughts, and especially Peter. There was apprehension also. They were the followers of a condemned and executed leader. They share his odium and guilt. They may perhaps meet the same fate. They meet the third day, the doors locked for fear of the Jews. There has come startling intelligence of the open and empty sepulchre, and that angels had been seen, and that they had said that Jesus was alive. Some of the apostles ran to the sepulchre and found it empty. Finally, Mary Magdalene appears and tells them she has seen the Lord, and then later Peter comes and announces he has also seen Jesus, and just at evening the two apostles come, breathless, to tell of their seeing Jesus, of their talk and his breaking bread with them, and recognizing him as he did so. We can imagine their condition. Intense excitement and expectancy must have filled every mind. They were nervous and strained to the keenest attention to every passing sound and step. They were questioning each other and asking and giving opinions. In the midst of this excited company, the object of all their thoughts suddenly appeared. Perhaps he was there all the time and listening, as at the sepulchre, and for the same purpose. Surely now they will believe. They had every reason to cast away every doubt, but it is clear that they did not yet believe. Unbelief is a stubborn thing. Nobody but the power of the Holy Spirit will drive it out. The first words of Jesus were, Peace be unto you. It was a common salutation, but fraught also with meaning to them in their condition. They needed peace just then. A nervous and excited state is not favorable to the work of grace. Its effects are transient and unreliable, and liable to suspicion by the subject and by others. But there was a deeper meaning, as he showed by repeating the salutation, and the significant act with which he accompanied the words and their changed feelings. And when he had said this, he showed unto them his hands and his side. The disciples, therefore, were glad when they saw the Lord. Here was an answer to all their self-reproaches, Doubtless they would have cast themselves at his feet in humiliating confessions of cowardice and unfaithfulness and unbelief. But with great-hearted graciousness he gently stops them with these words of full forgiveness and blessing. But there was a deeper and broader meaning yet in these simple words of Jesus, and the act with which they were accompanied in the succeeding words and acts, which were as follows, Peace be unto you, as the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye forgive, they are forgiven unto them. Whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. 
the raised hands were the proclamation of the gospel of the crucified and risen savior the repeated salutation of peace be unto you gives the verbal message there is the proclamation of the three forms of peace peace from god peace with god and the peace of god the latter covered peace for the past with all its sins and mistakes peace for the present with all its anxieties and burdens and peace for the future with all its hopes and fears down to the end and into eternity the authority jesus conferred on the apostles is seen in these words as the father hath sent me even so send i you whosoever sins ye forgive they are forgiven unto them whosoever sins ye retain they are retained these words were spoken to the apostles alone and this authority for them alone this was the great commission given the apostles in which they after spoke and wrote and acted in christ's stead he accompanied these words with a significant act and word he breathed on them and saith unto them receive ye the holy ghost the apostles only were present and it was an exclusive commission which was given them we do not read of this being repeated or given any others the time was forty days before the public and general giving of the holy ghost at pentecost the act was intensely personal on the act of jesus and the apostles also it was therefore a transference by jesus of his life and work to the apostles the act and words are mutually explanatory all that breath is to the body the holy spirit is to the believer it is life jesus said i came that they may have life and may have it abundantly now he fulfills this he imparts to them his own life by the spirit as there was imputed to them life by his death and resurrection breath means speech they were to be witnesses for him in this simple act we have the very thing called inspiration in this then christ shows us not only that his apostles were to be inspired but how he himself breathed into them he authorized them to speak and write as he himself so here we have the word and act of christ to show that the writings of his apostles are of equal inspiration with his own all was received by simple faith they saw nothing and felt nothing they were to receive and to believe that he then gave the holy spirit to them all on his word the effects of this interview and experience are seen in the apostles in the absence of the disturbed feelings in their joy at his ascension in filling the vacant apostleship and patient faithful waiting and holding of the others about them in prayer until the outpouring of pentecost while this was for the apostle there is a lesson of the work of christ in giving the holy spirit here for all the believer has the same spirit as jesus had on earth all that he had and did we may in a measure also enjoy and do we have his life imparted as well as imputed we are to receive all by faith received ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith he therefore that supplieth to you the spirit and worketh miracles among you doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith there is no need of waiting for signs or feelings we may take christ at his word and accept the holy spirit as fully and as freely as we do christ himself and go our way believing we have received the sight of the crucified and risen christ and his many promises all furnish the same warrant for accepting the holy spirit as for accepting the salvation of which jesus is the finisher as well as the author 
the forty days between the death and ascension of jesus were a time of great activity with him we are not to suppose that the ten appearings to his disciples were all such appearings during that time any more than the few miracles recorded were all he wrought in his life the list given by paul of the appearings of christ is not inclusive it does not enumerate half of the gospel list and amidst that to the women and the two goings of a mouse the statement is made by Peter that he appeared not to all the people, but unto witnesses that were chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. The meaning of this is that he did not appear to the public, but only to his own, that they might be witnesses of his actual resurrection. There were reasons for his not appearing to the world. The last scene of Jesus by the world was on the cross, which is their only sight until he comes in judgment. After the account of his call to Thomas to put his finger in the print of the nails and his hand into his side, John writes, Many other signs, therefore, did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye may have life through his name. The reasons for believing that this statement refers to the events of the forty days and not to the entire life of Jesus are as follows. John makes a further general statement covering the life of Jesus at the close of the book, and it does not seem probable he would make two such statements. The first is the less in force and scope of the two, and evidently refers to a lesser time and sphere. Again, John often in his gospel interjects such local remarks in his narrative referring to the immediate subject in hand. Further, the expression, other signs, refers to the one just preceding, of asking Thomas to put his finger in the print of the nails and thrust his hand into his side. Jesus did not give such signs during his life, though often asked for them by the Jews. Again, these signs were done in the presence of the disciples, and evidently for their special benefit, all of which was true of his resurrection acts, and not true of his former miracles. But the purposes of the signs shows clearly when they were wrought. These are written that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye may have life through his name. As Alfred states it, the mere miracle faith so often reproved by our Lord is not that intended here. This is faith in himself as Christ, the Son of God. We must remember that we here stand on resurrection ground, and it is this great fact which is now being demonstrated. It is proof of and faith in the risen Christ which is the subject of these words of John. We know by the character of the ten specimen appearances and deeds of the risen Jesus what the others were. We may believe that he appeared to his assembled apostles many times, perhaps every Lord's Day. This was so called because it was the Lord's Day for meeting with them. Seven such meetings could have taken place. He doubtless appeared to many as he did to the two on the way to Emmaus. Many such homes doubtless enjoyed his visits. Perhaps in distant places he appeared, and to humble persons whose narratives are not recorded, and to feeble and old persons who, like Simeon and Anna, were waiting for the consolation of Israel. We know he went to Galilee, and met his people there. It seems almost certain he would visit again the loved circle at Bethany, and that Martha would know a new meaning to his word, I am the resurrection and the life, and that Lazarus, whom he loved, that sad, silent character, would have another sight of him who was more than life to him. Joseph and Nicodemus saw the form they bore to the tomb, living with a new life, and the latter saw what he further meant by being born again. Mary saw once more him who was more to her than son, and the sword wound in her heart was healed. 
Zacchaeus may have welcomed the divine guest once more to his home, and the woman at the well given him drink again. By the seashore at their tables, by the wayside in their assemblies, on the hillsides at night and by day, by appointment and unexpectedly, Jesus came to his loved brethren. He fulfilled his promise, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Their joy is full. Their Lord lives to die no more. What he did, too, we are told. He instructed those who did not know the meaning of his death. He comforted weeping ones like Mary. He convinced doubting ones like Thomas. He met and forgave faithless ones as Peter, and met and helped some in their needs, as the seven fishermen, who had caught nothing, but whom he directs to a bountiful haul of fish. In short, he ministered to body, to soul, and to spirit, as he did before. He showed them he was to be an ever-present friend and helper in all their needs. They learned for themselves what they afterward taught to us, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he careth for you. By the lessons of the imminence of the Lord, they learned the truth of his constant presence with each one of them, wherever they might be, or whatever their temporal or spiritual needs or states. There is this difference, however, between the resurrection and earthly life of Jesus— in the latter he ministered to all. In his resurrection life, he confined himself to his own people. The last appearing of Jesus was to his assembled church. It was great in significance, as was the first. The place of departure was chosen for many evident reasons. He led them out until they were over against Bethany. It was close to the little home so dear to him. He was on the road, along which he had come riding in his formal approach to offer himself to Israel as their Messiah. He was as near to Jerusalem as could be, and not be seen from the great city. It was on the Mount of Olives, and it was written, His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, the point of departure being the place of arrival. It was the place from which he beheld the city and wept over it. Here he gathers the company about him. He had already announced to his apostles the resumption of his administrative work, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. He had further given them their command as to the work, saying, Go ye therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world." Now he gives them the parting promise, Ye shall receive power, when the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and unto the utmost part of the earth. And behold, I send forth the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city until ye be clothed with power from on high. All has now been finished which he came to say and do. The ascension of Jesus is thus simply described by one of the witnesses, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he parted from them, and was carried up into heaven, and a cloud received him out of their sight. He was hid from their sight, but they were not hidden from his. He looks down upon the little company at his feet. They are his flock. They heard his voice and followed him. He remembers none of their failures or faithlessness. They are inexpressibly dear to him. They were the germ of the church, the depositaries of his truth for all the world and all the age. He is leaving them as sheep among wolves. They are to face untold dangers for his sake and to suffer joyfully and at last to die, 
some of them as he died, from love to him. But they are to be kept true, and to finish their course in triumph and to meet him in glory. As he rises, a larger scene meets his view. Jerusalem was spread out before him. It has crucified him. But he had cried, Father, forgive them, as his blood flowed out, and the prayer sealed with his heart's blood will be answered. It was the city of David, and he remembered his promise to David that his seed should sit on his throne. It was the site of his father's house. Temple and city must and will be redeemed. He rises still higher. The land of Israel is all before him. He had walked its roads and preached and healed from village to village. Under the open sky, he is Jehovah, promised Abraham that land in possession forever. He has sealed that covenant afresh with his blood. He remembers Israel's early love. They're following him into and through the wilderness. He calls to mind all the long line of faithful men and women who had kept his truth. For a time they are to be hardened, but he knows they are to look upon him which they have pierced, and to receive him as their Messiah. As he ascends, a still larger scene meets his eye. The world he made and has just redeemed rolls at his feet. Surely he paused to gaze upon it. Successively its cities swarming with people and all its lands with their many tribes of men pass in review before him. To save this world he came. It is his by creation and now by redemption. It was all in his mind as he hung upon the cross. He took all its load of sin upon himself and expiated all by one sacrifice. He had left his heart's lifeblood in its soil. He thinks of the coming centuries of wars and famines and gospel proclamation. He knows that out of every nation and tongue and tribe and people shall they come to sit down with him in his kingdom, and after some ages shall pass, the earth shall be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. An event occurred in the history of Jesus after his death, which is thus described. Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit, in which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which aforetime were disobedient, when the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. This is a much-disputed passage. It has been interpreted as meaning only that Jesus preached through Noah, who had the Spirit of Christ. Undoubtedly, Jesus did by his Spirit preach through Noah, as through all the prophets from that day on. But this statement goes far beyond that. Alfred writes thus on this passage, Jesus went to the place of custody of departed spirits, and there preached to these spirits, which were formerly disobedient, when God's long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Thus far I conceive our passage stands committed, and I do not believe it possible to make it say less or other than this. Meyer states, This is the view of the oldest fathers of the Greek and Latin churches, as also of the greater number of the later and modern theologians. The visit of Christ to this place is also referred to by both Peter and Paul in a quotation from the Psalms. Thou wilt not leave my soul in Hades, neither wilt thou give thy Holy One to see corruption. He, foreseeing this, spake of the resurrection of the Christ, that neither was he left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He is also referred to by Paul in these words, He that ascended, what is it but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? The purpose of this preaching of the gospel to these is thus referred to by the same apostle who gives the first passage. For unto this end was the gospel preached even to the dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. 
To these spirits Jesus preached the gospel. It was the perfect gospel only then fully prepared by the atonement for sin. The same gospel by which we and all are saved. The hearers were those who had lived and died without any gospel or any law. They are thus referred to by Paul, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the likeness of Adam's transgression, who was a figure of him that was to come. This mission of Jesus he referred to in his opening sermon describing the errands he came to fulfill. He hath sent me to proclaim release to the captives. He looked forward to this from the beginning of his mission. The following scripture gives the account of the full success of this gospel mission of Jesus. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now this he ascended, what is it but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. The term captivity refers to those taken by the enemy and afterward recaptured by their own friends again. It is so applied to the captive Israelites by Deborah, Arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive. Reverend Elijah R. Craven, D.D., writes as follows, Christ, between the periods of his death and resurrection, delivered from Hades a captivity contained therein. The fact that he did so, the writer believes to be referred to in several passages. This was a victory over Satan such as Christ described in this scripture. No one can enter into the house of a strong man and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Having bound the strong man, Christ now spoiled his house. It was Christ remembering his first human friend and his children. It was Jehovah fulfilling the type of Abraham, bringing back the captive Lot and his family taken by the enemy, and David coming in triumph with his own, taken from Ziklag. It was the first gospel revival. Before Pentecost came, there was a Pentecost in the netherworld. They heard the good news. It was truly news to them. Whether they hoped for any deliverance, we do not know. But if they knew, we can imagine their expectancy and delight when the Savior came and flung the prison doors wide open. The church is a glorious body, but we must not limit the work of Christ to it or to our agencies. We do not have a monopoly of the custody of the grace of God. He can work with us or without us, immediately or immediately, by us or by himself alone. There is no warrant, however, from this incident, for the doctrine of a second probation for any since that time. It was a single errand of Jesus before his ascension to a single class who lived and died under exceptional circumstances. They had neither law nor gospel, and were cut off suddenly as a whole world by an awful overthrow, which was necessary to bring in a new dispensation. The following passage refers to those we are considering, and declares their spiritual state and the grace of God to them. Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Where no law is, there is no transgression. The world has had since both law and gospel, and as the apostle teaches, has rejected the truth and is now in self-chosen darkness. There are direct statements of scripture as to the relative positions of those in Hades and Paradise, as well as the possibility of the former being delivered. In the narrative of the rich man and beggar, Abraham tells the former, Between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from, hence from you, may not be able, and that none may pass over from thence to us. 
the time when jesus preached to the spirits in prison is by those who take this view usually held to have been between his death and resurrection but this does not seem possible for the following reasons the redemption which he undoubtedly preached was the same we enjoy and this was not finished until his resurrection the scriptures teach that his resurrection was the vital part of redemption christ was delivered for our trespasses and was raised for our justification if christ hath not been raised your faith is in vain ye are yet in your sins then they also which are fallen asleep in christ are perished jesus could not proclaim the finished gospel until he rose from the dead for redemption was not finished until then again it is not at all probable nor according to his own words that he would proclaim the finished gospel to these disobedient spirits before he announced it to his loved circle of chosen and intimate friends on earth still further as we shall see the company of these spirits had a place with him in his ascension and it does not seem probable that he would keep them waiting forty days after his proclamation of the gospel of their deliverance besides the account gives the impression of an immediate deliverance connected with his ascension further he was in paradise during the time of his burial as he promised the dying thief and as the analogy of the believer's death requires us to believe his dying words into thy hands i commend my spirit are in harmony with the view of his being in paradise another objection is that to preach in his disembodied spirit after having assumed his human nature would be a retrogression which does not occur elsewhere in his work and most vital of all is the objection that jesus and his disembodied spirit is not the christ of redemption the savior to know who consists of the eternal christ and the glorified nature and risen body of jesus the words put to death in the flesh but quickened in the spirit refer to his death and resurrection and simply place in contrast his earthly and resurrection state and life in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison the history of the earthly life of christ usually ends with his ascension but this divides the narrative of his exaltation which began with his resurrection by the aid of scripture we can follow him further we know where jesus went by his words what then if ye should behold the son of man ascending where he was before a body requires a place christ is therefore in some place we apply the word heaven to all the holy part of the unseen world but there are localities there as here we are not in the dark as to where christ is the present state of christ is everywhere described in scripture as sitting on the right hand of god the dying stephen saw him there and so testified it was the prophecy in the messianic psalm quoted by our lord and the apostles so often sit thou on my right hand until i make thine enemies thy footstool the reception of the ascending jesus is described to us if heaven was vocal when jesus was born what must have been the joy and glory there when he re-entered in triumph with his attending angels and the captivity taken from the hand of the enemy the sons of god shouted for joy because of the finished creation we do not know their song but we have the anthem of welcome to the triumphant redeemer lift up your heads o ye gates and be lifted up ye everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in who is this king of glory the lord is strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle lift up your heads o ye gates yea lift them up ye everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in who is this king of glory the lord of hosts he is the king of glory the great act of christ on entering heaven was to present for us his finished work as declared in the following passage for christ entered not into a holy place made with hands like in pattern to the true but into heaven itself now to appear before the face of god for us this was a once-for-all act 
in this act he presented himself and his blood as the evidence of his fulfillment of all the forfeits accepted by him since the world was he fully met all the obligations assumed by him the work of christ on entering heaven was applied there also for heaven had been defiled by sin as well as earth angels had fallen satan had entered and his work there needed that cleansing should be applied this is referred to by the following text it was necessary therefore that the copies of the things in the heavens should be cleansed with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these the far-reaching scope of the work of redemption is here indicated jesus would have had to die if not a soul of man had been saved in some way angels are or will be lifted up by the great atonement it applies to all the creation also for that too was defiled and waits for its release from the bondage of corruption the effects of the sacrifice on cavalry go down to the smallest animacule and up to the highest archangel and into the remotest point of the eternal future as it sweeps back to the beginning in its scope there is also another phase of the story of redemption christ said before his death i beheld satan falling as lightning from heaven now is the judgment of this world now shall the prince of this world be cast out only by force did satan renounce his right to a place among the sons of god he had held so long the victory was won by the blood of the lamb it is to be observed that this ascension victory of christ over satan affects christ personally his people are still exposed to the accusations but as will be seen in the next chapter are protected by jesus with his blood as a plea the vision of john completes the description of the advent of jesus to heaven on his return from earth and i saw and i heard a voice of many angels round about the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands saying with a great voice worthy is the land that hath been slain to receive the power and riches and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things that are in them heard i saying unto him that sitteth on the throne and unto the lamb be the blessing and the honour and the glory and the dominion for ever and ever the ascension of christ involves more than the acquiring of heavenly imputed and unseen benefits its actual benefits immediate and experimental are of vast extent they are thus described by peter on the day of pentecost being therefore by the right of god exalted and having received of the father the promise of the holy ghost he hath poured forth this which ye see and hear he himself had said if i go i will send him unto you he charged them to remain in jerusalem until his promise was fulfilled this was the actual fulfillment and when the day of pentecost was now come they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound as of the rushing of a mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting and there appeared unto them tongues parting asunder like as of fire and it sat upon each one of them and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance this was the universal pouring out of the holy spirit as all his gifts and graces upon the church for themselves and for convicting power in their preaching of the gospel we naturally ask why was not this given until the day of pentecost fifty days after the resurrection of jesus the reason of the delay until the resurrection of Jesus was that all this was part of the fruits of his atoning and redemptive work. But the reason of the delay until the day of Pentecost, ten days after the ascension, is not so clear. We have seen he had already imparted to them the Holy Spirit when he breathed on them, and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost on the day of his resurrection. 
fifty days elapsed before the coming of the Holy Spirit, as afterward promised by him. Among the reasons of this delay in sending this gracious outpouring was the state of the disciples themselves. They needed the preparation of quiet waiting and prayer after the scenes of the forty days appearing of Jesus. There was also a reason in the field of their immediate work. Pentecost saw a vast gathering from many lands of devout seekers after truth who had become attached to the religion of Israel, and the outpouring, wherein they heard every man in his own tongue, sent the gospel everywhere over the earth. There was also a typical reason for the waiting until Pentecost. It was on the first day of the week, seven weeks before there was waved before the altar a sheaf, the first fruits of the harvest then beginning to be ripe. On the day of Pentecost there were waved two loaves of unleavened bread from the same harvest. Most of those converted at Pentecost were Israelites, not only of Jews, but of the dispersion, the ten tribes scattered abroad. This occasion had special reference to Israel. Paul had this in mind when he writes, If the first fruit is holy, so is the lump. But the middle wall of division no longer exists so far as gospel privileges are concerned. Jesus rose on the day the first sheaf of the harvest was waved, and the outpouring occurred on the day of the waving of the two loaves. The latter represents the two churches, now one in the scope of grace. Paul again refers to this in the words, We who are many are one bread. The fire which baked the loaves has its fulfillment in the Holy Spirit, which Jesus said should baptize them with fire. The changed character is typified by the bread. Comparing the two givings of the Spirit, we note that the first was given by Jesus himself to the apostles only, the latter to all by the Father through him. We also observe that the former was accompanied by no manifestations except the silent breathing of Jesus. That the first was not the full, whole giving is plain from the need of the second being given, and their waiting for it. The difference is further seen by the fact that they did no work as the church except to fill the vacant apostleship until they received the Pentecostal effusion of the Holy Spirit. The further difference is seen in the immediate and great change which the latter produced in the disciples, and the mighty effects which followed in others through their speaking and miracle-working power. Still further, the latter was repeated, while the first was not. The former may be described as the conferring of apostolic authority, the latter of power for service. There is also this difference. The apostles received all the same authority, but the recipients of the Pentecostal outpouring each received a portion, as Paul teaches. This finished immediate work Jesus came to do. The world was brought into relations of grace with God. The church formed and endowed with all gifts and graces for its work. There ensued the long age in which we live. The state and work of Christ in this comes next before us. End of chapter 4, part 4